Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bradley Sherman will join us to discuss the Super Age. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the populace is aging. Several countries have already reached the super age, and another 10 countries will join them. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Bradley Sherman. Mr. Sherman is a demographic futurist and opinion maker on all things dealing with the business of longevity. He is a sought-after speaker all over the world and based in Washington, D.C. He has penned the new book, The Super Age, Coding Our Demographic Destiny, and joins us to discuss this issue for a general audience. And Mr. Sherman, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks to you so much. It's awesome to be here with you today. Well, the aging populace may have some very profound consequences on our society. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. You know, I saw demographic change as a clear and present threat, as well as an opportunity just over two decades ago when I was a college student at American University in Washington, D.C. I noticed that there were shifts happening in our population that would have a seismic effect on our social and economic norms. Specifically, we're having fewer kids, fewer our birth rates decline, and there are simply going to be more adult, old, older adults. So our dependency ratios are a bit out of whack. Our systems, which are set up for perennial growth, are not built to sustain a change like this, where we have so many older people and so few younger people. So where there is a possibility of crisis in this period, there's also a possibility of great opportunity both social and economic, if we if we take the proverbial bull by the horns and lean into this demographic change. How aware are the terms of this impending crisis and what is being done about it? Well, I mean, I think policymakers are acutely aware of the realities of demographic change, but whether or not they're going to do something about it is a completely different story. We live in a representative democracy here, and older populations do have a larger say. That's not because their vote counts any more than a younger person's vote. It's because they vote at higher rates than younger people do. So there is a degree of protectionism around programs like Social Security and Medicare that may block out the prospects for younger generations, future generations, to get access to those programs. It's not a particularly healthy way to govern right now because it takes away something that we're you tend to be pretty good at as Americans, which is being pragmatic. We're being protectionist right now with these social welfare programs. What are the consequences for societies at the population ages? What are the changes that we can foresee and what are the things that will be the pressure points if we don't act going forward? Well, the singular thing that all societies have to engage with around an older population is keeping people engaged economically for longer periods of time, keeping them in work. So our model of pension delivery, this idea that people are old at 65, it's really outdated, certainly against the modern context and certainly against how healthy and active people are today. Retiring at 65 and living for another 20 plus years, 
30 years in some cases without working doesn't quite jive against the modern reality. So if we want to keep our economy healthy, we have to keep people employed for longer periods of time. If we want to keep these social welfare programs as safety nets, which is essentially what they were designed to do, then we have to encourage people to stay engaged in paid work for longer periods of time as well. And there's also just an underlying issue here around consumerism. People who are working tend to be active consumers and people who are not, are not. In fact, you know, the Whirlpool CEO, which talked about demographic change just a few months ago, which is pretty, pretty remarkable for an American CEO to dive into this conversation. But he said systemic issues right now, but they could turn structural very quickly. We could not have enough consumers if we don't have enough people working. Many ways you're saying we have to rethink our conception of how we structure our societies with this aging population. Oh, 100%. And here's the deal. Every time we go through a major transition, typically they're tacked to industrial revolutions and we're in the fourth one right now. There's some kind of renegotiation of the social contract. This is not something new. This is not something revolutionary, certainly against the backdrop of history. In fact, during the second industrial revolution, which happened just around the Chicago World's Fair and that time period, we renegotiated the social contract. We took kids out of factories, out of farms, and we put them into schools. We made sure that foods were processed and safe to eat. We made sure that families had access to clean water and that we sanitized our waste. These were revolutions at that time and were really not part of society before then. We also added things into the mix like pensions to take care of the oldest members, the frailest members of our society. The problem is, is that over the 20th century, a lot changed. A lot of people ended up living longer than ever before. And because of this, we have an imbalance in the way we deliver monetary and physical care to people. And if we don't address it, the systems can collapse. I mean, I... I hate to be hyperbolic about it, but they will collapse if we do nothing. And that's scary because there are a number of people that do rely on these programs in the United States. But we can turn this around. You know, we know that people who stay engaged and work for longer periods of time are economically healthier for longer periods of time. We also know now, and there's quite a bit of data that supports this, that, that says that people who are engaged in work for longer periods of time also remain physically and cognitively healthier for longer periods of time. So it's not that, just, that we're just keeping around consumers for extra years or that we're delaying the onset of pension uptake. We're actually doing a service to society by keeping people healthy. We're taking the pressures off of the healthcare system that is already stressed to the max. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing that we should be looking forward to. But yeah, your question is spot on. It is going to rile a few people that have said, I've done my years. I don't need to work anymore. The system's set up for me to retire and I'm going to walk away. The problem, though, Charles, is that all too often people don't realize how much they need for retirement. It's expensive to not work, really expensive. And time and time again, folks who are undersaved have to reenter the labor market and they earn an incredibly small amount against what they did before. So leaving the workforce is a bad deal unless you're absolutely sure you're ready financially, mentally, and physically for the long haul. As you know, there are a number of countries that have already reached this super age, have an aged population. How are they dealing with those changes and what can we learn from how they're addressing the issue? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of heads in the sand around demographics. We tend to wait until these major challenges like climate are so far in our face that we can't ignore them anymore. But the real tip of the spear on demographic change right now is Japan. And Japan has done a really good job of bringing technology in to assist with care delivery. They've done quite a bit to modify their communities and their existing infrastructure to be more inclusive of older populations. But they've done a terrible job of keeping people employed for longer periods of time, even though it's a central tenet of their economic strategy. So practice doesn't meet policy there. But then if you take a look at Germany, another industrial superpower, Germany has done, I think, a very good job of employing people later in life. And there are some real stars in Germany that, that stand out. And they're almost all in the automotive industry. BMW, Porsche, Mercedes-Benz have all taken a very inclusive approach to their factories because they simply needed older workers to survive. It was either bringing immigrants or use the workers you have or some mix of the two. In Germany, these industries focused on keeping the workers they have for longer periods of time. So inclusive design, ergonomics, lifelong education have become really core components to the way these companies are operating. And the great news is, is that when you keep older people engaged in work for longer periods of time, empathy builds amongst younger populations within the workforce as well. And you end up creating a better product at the end of the day. So today, you know, two-thirds of all automobiles are purchased by people over the age of 50. Businesses have to respond to that reality. They have to take that bull by the horns and they have to say, yeah, okay, we're going to get behind this. And one of the surest ways that they can get behind this change is by bringing in people that are this age, that may have specific needs or wants or desires that may not jive with those of a younger age population. Some of this might be driven by the fact that this will be a group that's going to be numerous and have a lot of income that can be spent. And so businesses naturally might want a continuing economic activity. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is a supply and demand issue at the end of the day. This is basic economics 101. We need more people to work. We need more people to consume. We aren't producing enough people to fill those gaps. So we have to work with what we got. In places like the United States, our population is growing at a sluggish pace right now. Back for the past seven years, the exception of 2021, our population is, our birth rates have actually been in decline, with 2020 being our lowest year on record. And I mentioned the past seven years because 2021, we did see an increase, but it was by one tenth of 1%. So, I mean, that basically comes out in the wash at the end of the day. We are simply having fewer kids. And you can point to a thousand reasons for this, but one of the biggest is our attitudes towards having children have changed. They are not an economic necessity to a family. Women are educated now where they weren't before, and they can make a choice because of family planning on whether or not they choose to be mothers um, versus having that thrust upon them as they did you know, just a century ago. At different stages of life, dealing with the aging population. Well, I don't think we have to look at it as a problem. I think if we look at it as a problem, we're trying to find solutions to something that doesn't necessarily can be solved. We have to look at it as a reality, a new reality, a novel reality that has never happened before in the history of humankind. That is exciting. We should get excited about that because it offers us a great chance to remake the world in a way that we see fit. Close things like the longevity gap. 
The longevity gap is the number of years between the richest rich and the poorest poor, between the, the, the most privileged and the most marginalized. And it's a, it's a really stark gap in places like Chicago, where the longevity gap between the south side and northern parts of the city are just about 32 years, 31 years now. That's disturbing. And that's something that we should really be fixated on fixing right now. But I think from an economic standpoint, this long life that we've been given is the greatest gift and the greatest success story of humankind thus far. It's not getting to the stars. It's the fact that we've essentially solved for infant and youth mortality. We are given license now because of that to live into adulthood, into old age. And because we have these new lives, because we get to live longer than ever before, we get to experience more. We get to love more. That's amazing. And yes, it comes with some trade-offs. We have to work more. We have to consider some things that might be outdated in terms of our systems and how we deliver things like care to those that are in the very latest portion of their life. But on the whole, this is a good thing. We're not just adding years to the end of life, Charles. We're actually pushing years into the middle. That means that we get to be healthier for longer periods of time, more connected to our communities, more active members of society. I think we should be ecstatic about this new period, not think about it as gloom and doom. This is really a a chance and opportunity for remaking our societies. Sure. And I mean, the converse is true, too. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not all sunshine and lollipops here. If we choose not to do anything, we're on a collision course for calamity. And it will get bad really quick. But we have that chance. We have that chance right here, right now, turn things around, to renegotiate that social contract, to think of older populations as net contributors to society versus consumers, dependence on society, and we should do it. We should also take on these challenges around inequality that that are spattered throughout society right now, whether it be through the BLM movement or Me Too. We should embrace them as part of our new future, our new long life future, and ensure that people have greater access to education and healthcare so that all of us can live these long, successful lives. People reading the book, they're interested in the changes that are going forward. What would you like to take home from the book and final notes going forward? I think new periods of humanity require novel solutions. And if you're able to look at older populations as part of us, not as them, not as others, then we'll see a great transformation occur in the way we deliver services, products, and even care at the end of the day. Our communities are already becoming more age diverse, and that's a good thing. Our businesses are starting to reconsider what a consumer looks like. It's not just the 18 to 24s. Our future looks incredibly gray right now, but it's also incredibly bright because of all the opportunity that lies before us. Folks just need to open their eyes and see the change that's happening all around them everywhere. We were just talking with Mr. Bradley Sherman. He's the author of the new book, The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Mr. Sherman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It was great being here. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.